Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us again. 11 days until polling day. I'll have something to say later about pre-polling. But before that, don't forget to tell your friends and family how to watch. Just head to the adh.tv website. That's the simplest thing. And click watch now. You'll love it. Everything is there. A shout out firstly to all our friends in Queensland. The rain doesn't seem to go away. And there are forecasts of flooding in the central west and then tomorrow, heading up to Townsville and then south to the Sunshine Coast. The land is already saturated. So flooding will inevitably follow more record-breaking rain. Townsville is likely to get five times its May average. And while elections dominate the landscape here, who could forget the reign of Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, president for more than 20 years, which ended in disgrace during his third term. Economic collapse began. The opposition leader, Benigno Aquino Jr., was assassinated. In trouble over documents exposing Marcos's financial accounts, Marcos called a snap election in 1986, dominated by allegations of mass cheating and human rights abuses. A people power revolution in February 86 saw Marcos removed from power. He fled with his family to Hawaii, and according to source documents provided by the Presidential Commission on Good Government, the Marcos family stole between US $5 billion and $10 billion from the Central Bank of the Philippines. The son is Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., who in yesterday's presidential election has surpassed the 27.5 million votes needed for a majority, and he will be the next president of the Philippines. Marcos Jr. was able to secure the daughter of outgoing President Duterte as his running mate. It must be that many of Marcos's supporters were born after the uprising in 1986. His supporters seemed convinced that the past Marcos narratives were lies peddled by his opponents. 65.7 million Filipinos were eligible to vote yesterday for more than 18,000 elected officials. And it appears that Marcos Jr., who's 64, is more than 15 million votes ahead of his main opposition one of whom was the champion boxer Manny Pacquiao. Strange things happen in politics, but surely not this strange. A new President Marcos in the Philippines. Tonight, we'll talk to Defence Minister Peter Dutton and we'll go to America to talk to Peggy Grandy in the wake of the new debate there about abortion and the Roe versus Wade case way back in 1973. Don't forget you're on the adh.tv website. Tell your friends and you can have your say. Just email me, Alan Jones at adh. 
Now, in the leaders' debate on Sunday, and again in his interview with me yesterday, opposition leader Anthony Albanese mentioned the crisis in aged care. It is a brutal and politically damaging thing to say, but the problems in aged care are invariably of governments making whomever the government might be. We've had a Royal Commission into Aged Care only two years ago. The answers are there, though, as the Prime Minister rightly said on Sunday night, it's not an easy crisis to solve. Hundreds of aged Australians died in aged care as a result of coronavirus. But the Aged Care Royal Commission found that neither the Commonwealth Department of Health nor the aged care regulator had any specific plan for the aged care sector. Now, all governments mouth cliches about dignity in old age, but every residential aged care facility to be accredited is expected to have infection controls in place. But the Royal Commission found that across the aged care sector, there have been failures in clinical care and infection control, which failures resulted in hundreds of deaths. Now remember, families pay handsomely for a place in an aged care facility. There are currently up to 200,000 residents in almost 3,000 aged care homes on any one day. These residents are supported by over 1 million immediate family members. The homes are operated by over 800 care providers, employing over 300,000 staff, predominantly female, and qualified at a certificate level. Now, many families have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to gain access to one of these aged care homes, but all they've bought, it seems, is death for their loved ones. The inaugural head of the Federal Aged Care Workforce Strategy Task Force in 2017, Professor John Pollers, these are the government's own experts, warned the government it would need an extra $3.5 billion a year to provide adequate care, and that, he said, was at the low end of what was needed. A report on staffing commissioned by the Aged Care Royal Commission found 57.6% of residents are in homes with staffing that would rate only one or two stars. The report said existing restrictions in relation to aged care had, quote, tragic, irreparable and lasting effects which must be immediately addressed, unquote. The advocacy group Aged Care Crisis said in 2020, and I quote, aged care residents in nursing homes have been raped, robbed, bathed in kerosene, attacked by rodents, suffered injuries or deaths from other residents, burnt to death, strangled, cooked, melted, sedated to death, over-medicated or choked to death, unquote. This is the scandal of aged care. The federal government has a report from the Royal Commission from last year, 148 recommendations. The government said it would offer a comprehensive response. The Royal Commission found that half the elderly people living in nursing homes had dementia. Yet, and I quote, we are deeply concerned that so many aged care providers don't seem to have the skills and the capacity required to care adequately for people living with dementia, unquote. Surely it's no surprise that this sector is in crisis. The entry-level pay for an aged care worker is $21.09 an hour. $21.09 an hour. I mean, that's less than you get if you're a supermarket shelf stacker. Indeed, works in aged, workers in aged care are being paid $15 an hour less than an equivalent carer in the disability sector. The Royal Commission found that more than 44 seniors a day, over 16,000 a year, died waiting for their home care package designed 
to help older Australians stay in their own home. Consider those figures again. 44 seniors a day, over 16,000 a year, have died waiting for their home care package. It is a scandal. The average waiting time for in-home care is 14 months. I wonder if it was a politician or his family, would there be a 14 or a 20 month, 21 month wait? The government told us last year there would be, quote, a comprehensive response to the Royal Commission. There hasn't been, and so here we are today. If this is not a major election issue, it should be. One day, we all may finish up a victim of this neglect. Well, one of the cries by the so-called independents and echoed by the Liberal traitor Malcolm Turnbull is that only these teal independents are saving the Liberal Party from a shift to the right and the, quote, marginalisation of moderate voices. Now, if you analyse the language, it's nothing more than empty rhetoric. Of course, Peter Dutton is commonly branded by Turnbull and his ilk as part of the despised right. The language is meant to damage, but what they really mean, but won't admit, is that Peter Dutton belongs to the Menzies liberal tradition. When people say the Liberal Party has lost its way, it has nothing to do with right or left. It means that the, tradition, the traditional liberal values have been almost abandoned. Small government, lower taxes, free speech. People are terrified to say what they think. A solid education grounded in numeracy and literacy and an understanding of our history and geography, which are liberating forces for young people. That's all gone. And so there's a swathe of liberal supporters out there representing Menzies' forgotten people. These are the genuine liberals in a party hijacked by those who've sought to take it to the left and look what the Liberal Party has for its trouble. Wiped out in WA, wiped out in South Australia. Turnbull, who would have you believe, is the ideological guru and saviour of the Liberal Party, lost 14 seats in the 2016 election. Abbott, of the Dutton ilk, won 25 seats from Labor in two elections. Who was representing the true Liberals, Abbott or Turnbull? Well, now in the critical portfolio of defence, it could be argued that Peter Dutton has arrived too late. He joins me following an outstanding speech at the National Press Club last week in a defence debate against his Labor counterpart, Brendan O'Connor. Peter Dutton, thank you for your time. Um, without being alarmist, can I say the speech was quite terrifying. You spoke about it, if I could quote, the most significant change in our strategic environment since the Second World War. And you rightly said that, quote, Australians have watched on as the Chinese government has engaged in increasingly alarming activities, unquote. Peter, isn't it fair to say that successive governments have watched on as well? Well, um, no, it's great to be on the show. I think it's best to be frank with the Australian people about the reality of what we're seeing in the Indo-Pacific. And of course, this unholy alliance between Russia and China now should cause alarm for any right-thinking person. Mm. So yes, I do think it's uh, appropriate to speak up and to it be is. frank and honest. The intelligence that we see is quite alarming. In terms well, I mean, of, you did that at the press uh, club. The it, was, of China. it was outstanding. I mean, you talked about China, the largest navy in the world, 355 ships and submarines. Its naval battle force has more than tripled in size in two decades. You spelt that out. In four years, China has built new naval vessels, new ones, equivalent in tonnage to the entire Royal Australian Navy fleet. And they've done that every 18 months. Its Coast Guard has doubled from 60 to 130 1,000 tonne ships in a decade. They've got a maritime, you spelt this out, militia, that's got 300 vessels operating in the Spratly Islands. China claims to own them, but Taiwan and Vietnam and the Philippines have 
also laid claims to all of that. Peter, you then said over the next day, decade, China's nuclear warhead stockpile, estimated to be in the 200s last year, is projected to reach between 700 and 1,000 warheads, and this was the point, quote, every major city in Australia, including Hobart, is within range of these missiles. Peter, how many people are listening to the warning? I think more and more are, Alan. I think the pennies drop for a lot of Australians. And I think people realise that under President Xi, China is headed in a very different direction. It's a very different country. And we can keep our head in the sand or we can stand up and really honour the values that troops have fought for to protect our country and to defend us as a nation over generations. My argument is that uh, we, we stand with those that have kept our country safe over generations and that have shed blood for our country. They have uh, fought and defended and protected uh, our values and who we are as a people. And now is not a time for our country to cower. We can't be in the 1930s in an appeasement phase mm. and pretending that nothing is happening. We need mm. to call out any acts of aggression, mm. the acts of foreign interference and coercion. And if we do that, if we stand strong as a country, not just within our own region, but within our allies, the United States, United Kingdom, India, Japan, others, as you point out, then I do think we can change the course otherwise. Yes, but I mean, as you say, I mean, all this focus has been on the Solomon Islands, but you made the point in that speech, China have established 20 outposts in the South China Sea. They rejected The Hague's permanent court of arbitration verdict in 2016 on claims to the historic rights of the South China Sea, but China ignores the ruling. They've increased the number of military jets in Taiwan's air defence identification zone. They've used militia crewed fishing vessels to intrude into the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. They've imposed this national security law on Hong Kong, so doing away with the one country, two systems. And then, of course, the tariffs and bans on all of us. I mean, it's a litany of concern, isn't it? Well, it is, Alan. And I think uh, when you look at what the government's been able to invest in defence, about $270 billion over this decade. We increase our investment, the number of people that we have. And I think that sends a very clear message to the Australian people. We are on a different path as a government than Labor was. I mean, Labor stripped back funding to defence to 1.56% of GDP, the lowest level since 1938. I'd love to be commissioning a submarine or a frigate that Labor commissioned that Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard had ordered, but of course they never did. And so we've had a period of catch up and we have a lot more investment to make, but we will only deter aggression from a position of strength, not weakness. And that's right. uh, the approach that I've taken to this job. Was it right? And was it right? For, that. Sorry, was it right for the prime minister to say they've he's drawn a red line now with this phenomenal Chinese strike power? What do we do if they cross the red line? Well, Alan, I, I think it's no different, frankly, to the language that the Americans have used. Uh, their envoy, uh, Kurt Campbell, was in the Solomon Islands only a couple of weeks ago and spoke about uh, what would be acceptable and what wouldn't. And that, that's essentially the same uh, point the Prime Minister was making. Uh, we, we don't want conflict in our region. We want a normalised relationship with an important trading partner in China. But we can't pretend that nothing is going on. And the Solomon Islands has given an assurance about there not being a military base uh, on the Solomon Islands. And we take them at their word. But we have to be very clear as a country that, that our defences and the defences within our region are absolutely paramount. Right. Well, so that's, that's being, what we'll continue to focus on. That being the case then, what about Daru, where China are building an industrial city? Now, Daru is one of Papua New Guinea's most impoverished provinces. 
They're calling it China a multifunction fishing industrial park, which is an absolute lie. But my concern is that you can get in a little rubber boat and get to Australia in three days. But they're going to build a $40 billion Chinese city, hardly a whimper from Canberra, and there's been hardly a whimper from Canberra about it. What are we doing about Daru? Well, Alan, there's a proposal there. I don't think that project's going to get off the ground, is my honest assessment of it. I think there's been a lot of talk, a lot of interest, a lot of intent, no doubt, uh, but no execution. And that conversation, I suspect, will go on for some time with the traditional landowners and others. But I don't believe the project comes to fruition. And Australia's made its position very clear. The government uh, has been very strong in relation to saying that uh, we don't support uh, a project of that nature on our back door. Uh, and we, we will do you know whatever we can to continue to protect our interests. But see, Peter, uh, I, read, I, was reading, I was reading today comments by a CIA operative who said that China were going to build, his words, wharves, warehouses and support facilities um, and a naval base. I mean, this bloke, a former CIA FATUS operations officer, said it would be accurate to look at China's vast fleet of fishing vessels as a militia rather than a commercial enterprise, their mission is to expand China's sphere of influence. China fishing vessels are armed and their crews are trained by the People's Liberation Army. Now, Peter, if they get control here of the, for example, the area in the Timor Sea around the Straits to the north of Australia, this is where all our oil comes from, comes through. Well, Ellen, uh, well, as, as you've seen with the Belt and Road Initiative for some time and you don't need to rely on the intelligence or your imagination here look at the words coming out of the the chinese foreign affairs department yeah. and the spokespeople uh, they've been very clear uh, the president himself has been very clear about their ambition both toward taiwan and more generally the mm -hmm. belt and road initiative has been out public yep. you know publicized for people to see across africa uh, across the world and this couldn't shouldn't come as any surprise it's only that people have pretended that nothing's happening or uh, have been convenient for them uh, not to uh, not to pay attention and, and not to recognise the reality. Peter, coming back to my point, though, if the Chinese build a base on Daru, they'll be able to control, as I said, all the maritime traffic through the Torres Strait. Now, we import 80% of our oil. Most of it comes from refineries in Singapore. And the only way that oil could be moved to ports on the east coast of Australia, like Brisbane and Sydney, is through the Torres Strait. So just as the Chinese can threaten the movement of ships from Taiwan and Korea and Japan via their bases in the South China Sea, they would be able to hold a dagger to our throat. Uh, this is a major risk to us, surely. Alan, I, I, to be honest, I just don't see it as a realistic prospect. That, that's my assessment, and that's uh, something that we've looked at okay. very closely in okay. terms of what, what the intelligence is demonstrating. I know that there's been uh, a lot of speculation around that project for a many years, yep. but uh, I, I don't see it coming to fruition. Well, Greg Sheridan recently wrote in the Australian newspaper, and I quote, the Australian Defence Force is almost insanely structured to meet none of our strategic needs. Not one of our services, Navy, Air Force or Army, has any strategic strike power. Every one of our major defence programs, he wrote, is in disarray with their scheduled to deliver capability so far into the future that it's in the realm of science fiction. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think Greg Sheridan is one of the most highly respected uh, defence journalists in the country, but he's wrong uh, when he makes uh, a couple of those points. And uh, I think it's very clear that when you look at uh, the direction that the government's provided to defence, when you look at the acquisitions that are taking place, 
the Guided Weapons Explosive Ordnance Enterprise that we've uh, entered into, a multi-billion dollar program to acquire uh, missiles, but also to domestically establish that industry. So growing that manufacturing base here in Australia, the work that we're doing in space, in hypersonics, in uh, denial of services, the $10 billion that we invested in the budget uh, into Red Sp Operation Red Spice, which is about protecting the defences of our country. And as we've seen in the Ukraine, that now is uh, a very significant frontier where uh, the attacks are online, which are deniable uh, by countries like China or North Korea or Iran, for example, mm. but can bring down a banking system mm, or an energy grid, for example. Uh, they are all significant frontiers for us to defend. And if you look at uh, obviously what we've what we've done already, but what we're in the process of doing under the AUKUS deal, uh, that is an historic deal. Will provide the security underpinning of our country, you know, for the next 50 years. Okay. Just before you go, that Solomon Islands deal, China and the Solomon Islands. Did the Australian government? You've been on the National Security Committee for a long time. Did the Australian government know about this deal last August? We have spent many hours in the National Security Committee dealing with this issue over a long period of time, Alan, and every move that the government's taken has been based on that considered advice. Now, the Labor Party at the moment criticises Scott Morrison. They have no criticism of Jacinda Ardern, the Labor Prime Minister in New Zealand, who has essentially followed the same playbook as our Prime Minister, and based on, no doubt, the advice that she's receiving from intelligence agencies. Prime Minister Ardern uh, or her foreign minister haven't been to the Solomon Islands, and, and there are good reasons for that, not all of it publicly released. So when you look at the aggression of China, uh, the bullying within the region, their actions in relation to the Solomon Islands, they operate by very different rules than what we do, what New Zealand does, uh, or even Japan or, or you know, other countries within our region. Uh, we, we have to be realistic about that. The problem is not with Japan, it's with China under President Xi. The problem is not with India, uh, where there's acts of aggression and Chinese troops have killed Indian troops just in the last few years on that disputed land border. The problem is not with India. The problem is not with New Zealand. It's not with, as you say, the Philippines or Vietnam mm. uh, or Australia. Or with the, the Chinese people. With or with the Chinese people. <laughs> or, or indeed, absolutely. I mean, we have one of the most amazing diaspora communities here yep. in Australia. Well over a million people of Chinese heritage. Yep. They are law-abiding. They have been you know, educating their yep. children. And make uh, contributions to the national economy. Small business owners, yep. enormous, enormous contributors yep. and wonderful Australians. And mm. our gripe is not with them, it's with the Chinese government under President Xi. Good on you. Good to talk to you. Hope we can talk again. You're doing Thanks, a wonderful man. job and Australians are very grateful. Thank you for your time. There Thank is you, mate. Thank very you. informed, Thank you. isn't he? And tough. Peter Dutton, the Defence Minister. Now, look, I mentioned this last week, but allow me to comment again in some detail. There is an election on May 21 that yesterday voting began. 300,000 Australians voted yesterday. It's called pre-polling, where it seems to me most of the electoral and voting rules are broken. Let me make a couple of points. The Australian Electoral Commission issues a Your Official Guide to the 2022 federal election, in which it says, quote, the voting official will ask you for your full name and address, and if you voted before in this federal election, your name will be marked off the electoral roll, unquote. Why shouldn't we have to produce an ID card to prove we are who we say we are? Can you imagine anyone saying yes when they're asked if they've voted before, even though they might have voted many times? This is arguably the most important process in the nation. But you need an ID card to buy grog, 
an ID card to open a bank account, but no ID card to vote. If that's not mad enough, the so-called official guide tells us, quote, if you can't make it to a polling place in your state or territory on election day, you may be eligible to vote early, in person or by post, unquote. Now, can you believe this early voting, pre-polling, has already started? And as I said, already over 300,000 Australians have voted. But the Electoral Commission tells us that to be eligible to vote early, in person or by post, you must be, on election day, prove that you will be outside the electorate where you are enrolled to vote. These rules are law. So you can only pre-poll if, on election day, you'll be more than eight kilometres from a polling place, or if you're travelling. You've got to prove this, meant to, if you're unable to leave your workplace to vote, or you're seriously ill, infirm, or due to give birth shortly, or you're caring for someone who is. Or you'll be a patient in hospital and you can't vote at the hospital. Or you've got religious beliefs that prevent you from attending a polling place. Or you're in prison serving a sentence of less than three years or otherwise detained. Or you're a silent elector. That's someone whose name is on the roll, but the address isn't. Now, only in those circumstances are you allowed to vote early to pre-poll. That's by the law. When was the last time someone who decided to vote early, just as a convenience, was asked any of these questions about their eligibility to vote early. And yet, this early voting, as I said, has already begun. And there are two weeks of campaigning remaining. Anything could happen in those two weeks to the party or the individual or the candidate in your electorate. Why aren't these criteria, which are law, enforced? Why should people be able to walk up to a polling station from yesterday, give their name and perhaps some made-up excuse or no excuse at all, and vote? So we get the business on election night that we don't know the result because half the electorate is pre-polled. This is beyond absurd, like most things about voting in this country. Well may we ask, what is the significance of election day? And I venture to say, many of those who vote early are breaking the law. Quite frankly, you should have to establish, even by statutory declaration, how you qualify to vote early. Otherwise, election day should be election day when the bulk of the votes are cast. Let me make one final point again about the corruption of the process, and no wonder. In the 2016 election, when Turnbull won by the width of a cigarette paper, more than 18,000 people were asked to explain why they voted more than once at the federal election, despite heavy fines and the risk of jail time for multiple voting. They never found out. Two people were marked off the electoral roll 11 times on voting day, a further two people had their names marked off five times, four others had four marks, and 51 people had three. What's been done about this? Nothing. And we have a critical election. People vote, they break the law by voting early, and no one has to produce an ID card. Try telling the rest of the world we're fair dinkum. Well, let's go to Peggy Grandy, our voice in America. Now, Mother's Day for 2022 has come and gone, but in America, the issue of motherhood is about to explode onto the political scene. American media has been full of the unprecedented leaking of a draft opinion on Roe versus Wade, which gives the strongest indication yet that the Supreme Court in America will overturn the landmark decision of the US Supreme Court in 1973, where Jane Roe, a mother challenged Henry Wade, the district attorney of Dallas County, 
re her right to abortion. The Supreme Court then ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. The decision struck down many US federal and state abortion laws and the case fueled an ongoing abortion debate, which still rages today about whether or to what extent abortion should be legal, who should decide the legality of abortion and what the role of moral and religious views in the political sphere should be. So on this very vexed issue, let's go to Peggy in America. Peggy, lovely to talk to you again. Thank you for your time. I mean, this issue has taken on a life of its own. Was this a fallacious view of human rights, this my choice, my body, my right, because there is another human being at the centre of the abortion choice, isn't there? Well, I think Ronald Reagan always says it best. And he said, I seem to notice that everybody who's in favor of abortion has already been born. <laughs> so he always had a great way of putting things. But really, there's so much hysteria surrounding this leaked document. And this was in draft form. So it's not even known to be the final form. But I don't think that these justices are going to be intimidated by the left's um, willingness and interest in um, intimidating them in this way. This is really unfounded hysteria because all it's doing is returning the decision to the rightful owner, which is the state. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was an icon of the left, said that this decision was constitutionally unstable. Left and right judges have agreed for years that this is really something that should not have been decided um, in this way. Our Constitution grants powers to the federal government, and anything that's not explicitly granted to the federal government is, by default, the ownership of the states. And so this really is a state's issue. And so not, not even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, yeah. it goes back to the states where yes. we, the people, can decide what yes. that ruling I'll, is. I'll just come to that in a moment. That's a very interesting point that you make. But one commentator has described the leaking of the draft opinion as, and I quote, a nuclear bomb of an issue planted at the core of American liberalism. Now, what are your thoughts about that, Peggy? Well, I think they're trying to use this to intimidate um, and they're trying to intimidate the justices and they're trying to sway public opinion. But public opinion actually is pretty galvanized on this issue already. There's widespread support for abortion in the first trimester. And the American people are pretty united in that, except for, you know, one side extreme or the other. And so this is an extreme position that has been taken by the left. And they're trying to paint yes. the right as extreme, but it's really the left who are the outliers outside of public opinion on this issue. Yeah. Roe v. Wade, nonetheless, was most probably the antecedent to the culture wars, wasn't it? Because it wasn't about the rights of the unborn. It was simply about women's rights. And, of course, fathers disappeared from the argument. I mean, there was a certain fallacy in the pro-abortion argument, was there not, that the choice a woman made was the ultimate good, not whether it was a good or bad choice. And for the unborn child abortion is obviously not good. Right. 
Well, and things have changed a lot in 50 years. I mean, the public opinion has changed. I mean, goodness, we've just had Mother's Day, but I mean, the left would like to call it birthing person's day. Yes. But science and technology is really catching up with this issue. And all of a sudden, we can see inside the womb. We can see the moving fingers and toes, and we can see the breathing and the four chambers of the heart beating. And so science and technology is really catching up to this issue. There's all kinds of opportunities for birth control to prevent pregnancies that weren't available 50 years ago. And so it really is time for this issue to be readdressed and to be returned to the states, which is the rightful owner of this issue. Yes. Now, of course, many of these states, uh, just before we come to the, the states thing, uh, uh, is this likely to lead to a discussion of rights or will the overturning of Roe versus Wade just lead? Because when the left don't get their way, what do you get? Violence and demonstrations. Are we going to have more of that? Right. Well, they're certainly going to try to make it about that. But even in the leaked draft opinion, Justice Alito said explicitly that this only deals with the right of abortion. This does not deal with same-sex marriage or LGBTQ kids in school or all these things that Biden and the left are trying to make it out to be. So explicitly in the leaked draft of this opinion, it says that it is exclusively about this issue. So any fabrication on the left to try to make it about something else is really unfounded. And just coming back to that point you make, I understand that more than 50% of Americans are in favour of keeping abortion legal. So even if Roe is struck down, it won't outlaw abortion. It'll just take it, as you said, out of the realms of constitutional law and give it back to the states. That's what you're saying should happen. Right. That's where it rightfully belongs, because then there's accountability to the people and they can vote for however they want. I find it interesting, though, that there's always this great concern about what if a liberal person lives in a conservative state and they don't agree with the laws of that state? There's never any thought given to a conservative who lives in California or New York or in Illinois, someplace where there is um, a heavy liberal ruling that their, their rights are being violated too. So it's always funny that it, it never seems to go both ways, no, only never, one no. way. I mean, it'll send Trump critics into a tailspin, won't it? Because this will be a consequence of Trump nominating two of the court's six conservative right. justices. Right. And that's his part of his legacy that remains was returning the court um, to the place that he thought was rightfully suited. And it, it was his right to do that. You know, the left said, oh, we should have be able to pack the court. But even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said nine is the correct number. And so Trump was fortunate to be able to get some good judges on the court. And this really is the right legal decision, even if the left disagrees. Well, with well it, talking about the left, I mean, Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, have described the potential ruling as one of the worst and most damaging decisions in modern history, unquote. Uh, Peggy, not too much respect for the courts there unless they deliver the outcome that the political left seek. Right. They just want their way. They don't necessarily want what's right. And they hold up lionesses of the court like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But yet how she spoke about this very issue, they choose to ignore when it's politically expedient for them to do so. Peggy, just that brings us to the midterm elections in November and the Democrats are expected to lose their congressional majority. How do you think Roe versus Wade will affect that? I think they're trying to make it galvanize the left, but I think when it really comes down to it, it's not going to sway the vote at all. I think the American people are smart enough 
to realize the truth versus and the reality versus the hysteria that's surrounding this. I don't think it will work. I think the American people are smarter than this and they see beyond the talking points and they know the truth of what this really is and is not. It's uh, not banning abortion. It's just no. returning it to the state. Yeah, and many states have already passed bills, have they not, banning abortion right. at 15 weeks of pregnancy, like Florida, Kentucky and Arizona. And I note the Republican-led state of Oklahoma was amongst the latest to join. It approved a bill last month that would make performing an abortion a crime punishable by up to 10 years in prison or a maximum fine of $100,000. <laughs> where, where do you put that? Well, some of these governors have also said that the fact that it becomes a state issue gives them a lot more flexibility. And so they can make exceptions to these laws and rules, but they're reflecting the will of their constituencies and their voters, the people in their yeah, state yeah, yeah. who have made it clear that this is what they want. So it should be responsive. We, the people, tell the government what to do, not the other way around, right. and this will return it to well, we, the people. Well, just before you go, tell us about the series of bruising primary contests this month, which we're told will test Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party. Will voters endorse Mr. Trump preferred candidates? Well, we saw in Ohio this past week, J.D. Vance, who's a Senate candidate, he was down by about 10 points. Donald Trump came out and supported him, and within a week or two, he wound up winning. And so Donald Trump remains a political force to be reckoned with. And even if people don't like Donald Trump, they like America first, not America last policies. They saw what Donald Trump did for the nation and for the world and how strong we were and successful and prosperous under his leadership. So even if they don't like him, they liked his policies and they don't like the reversal of those policies, which we see from Joe Biden and the disaster that has ensued in just no over a year no under the reversal that. of those policies. Now, just before you go, I understand coming back to that point you made that across key battlegrounds of Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina and Alabama, nearly four in 10 Republican Senate primary ads mentioned Donald Trump. Yeah, he still is the one who puts his muscle behind candidates and that resonates with the voters still. When they're looking at a wide sea of candidates and they wanna know who to vote for, a lot of them are still gonna go with the Donald Trump endorsed candidates. It's gonna be interesting, the future of the party, are, it will be Trump influenced, even if it's not Trump led. And mm. that remains to be seen, but it'll mm. cer certainly be interesting Absolutely, to watch. the Democrats are still terrified of the Trump influence. Peggy, great to talk to you, plenty yes, happening. Thank you for your time and your insights, and we'll catch up again next week. There she is in America, Peggy Grandy. Well, last week you were astonished when the Secretary of the Federal Department of Health, Professor Brendan Murphy, and the Workplace Gender Equality Agency couldn't offer a simple definition of a woman. Senator Antich posed the simple question, what is a woman? Just notice, I thought you've all demanded to see this again, notice the completely blank faces as proof of how ruptured society has become. Have a look at this. With a very simple question for the department, and that is one which has troubled me for a great deal of time with the bureaucracy here. Can someone please provide me with a definition of what a woman is? <coughs> department of Health. Definition of a man, definition of a woman. Anyone? It's pretty basic. It's basic stuff. Professor Murphy. <laughs> there, look, I think there are there are a variety of definitions, and I, I think a simple perhaps, one. perhaps to give a, a more fulsome answer, we should take that on notice. You're going to take on notice yeah. the question of what a woman is. No, well, there are a variety. It's a very it's a very 
uh, it's a very contested space at the moment, Senator. It's not I just mean, a woman who's born a woman. But there are definitions in That's terms hilarious. of how people identify. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Well, it doesn't get any better. New South Wales government ministers were advised in a respect at work training session two weeks ago to avoid the word mate. And this advice was given during training sessions organised by the New South Wales Department of a Premier and Cabinet. As one minister said, we're not allowed to have individual opinions. We have to engage in group thought and now we can't call someone mate. He said this is straight out of 1984. Let's bring in Mark Latham. Mark, where does all of this end? Well, it's hard to know, Alan. Uh, calling someone a mate is a great Australian statement of friendship. And we need more friendship in our society at the moment, people coming closer together. To have mates and you stand by them is a very good thing. It's an Australian tradition. But mm. those uh, seminars you're talking about, funded by the New South Wales taxpayer, the ministers were also told by the so-called facilitator that to say to someone in the workplace, look, you know, you're not going all that well, you really need to lift your game, your performance is not all that good, is bullying which basically means it's a licence for incompetence and bludging off. I mean, these people are supposed to be running the state of New South Wales, uh, making the trains Priority. run on time, fix up the health emergency departments, mm. lift our school academic results that have been sliding downwards. Mm. So imagine being in a oh, ministerial Mark. office or Mark, a department are... where it's bullying to say, listen, yeah. listen, you're not going that well, you've mm. got to lift your game. I know. Where's this heading? Look, to matters as important, you made the point recently that Labor will be relying on the preference swap with the Greens to win the election and that, quote, we all know that voting Labor means getting the Greens. But you ask, what about the other side of politics? How do we explain the curious way in which Scott Morrison seems to have forgotten how he won the last election? Mark, your point. What do you mean by that? Well, I think if you vote Liberal, you get Teal. Because consistently over the last three years, Scott Morrison, who hasn't visited a coal mine in this term of parliament, he won the election on mining jobs, he hasn't visited a coal mine, and he's crab-walked away closer to the Frydenberg agenda, the Dave Sharma, the Zimmerman agenda. These guys are always on the phone to Morrison whenever there's a teal threat in their electorates to say the Liberal Party has got to go further green and further left. How did they end up at net zero 2050, as you described it, Alan? accurately as an economic suicide note for the nation. Uh, how do they end up at net zero 2050, uh, a policy that is teal in, in these electorates where Frydenberg and others are in a state of panic? How did they end up with more money for the ABC, an agreed three-year funding agreement for the ABC? How did Morrison late last year write a letter to Albanese saying he'd lift the Sex Discrimination Act exemption for non-government schools, which is basically a licence for the gender activists and the human rights tribunals to set upon these religious schools, uh, adjudicating on things like, can a boy go into the girl's toilet? So, you know, there's a madness about Morrison moving to the left. He has And these were the policies that Turnbull was pushing. Time. Turnbull was pushing and he lost 14 yes. seats. Yes, they've worried more about the inner city uh, wealthy elites than they have the people in outer Western Sydney, the outer suburbs, the regions. And if you vote Liberal, you're getting Teal. The Teal agenda is very clear. Because Frydenberg and others have panicked. They've got Morrison moving in that direction. And um, I say, if you get rid of uh, uh, these um, people like Sharma and Zimmerman, in, uh, these fake Liberals up against fake independents, well, you're actually getting rid of Greens out of the Parliament. Because the Green element in the Liberal Party now is manifest. Look at Matt Keane yeah. at New South Wales level, yeah. clearly to the left 
of, of the Labor Party yes. and, and the left even of the Greens. So see, on this people one, have got to be cognizant when they vote, Alan. This yeah. is not the party of Menzies or yeah. Fraser or Howard. This is a very different party mm. that is uh, teal in complexion, embracing woke left green policies. Yeah, and I mean, on all this climate change, keep it simple. I mean, the immediate past chief scientist for Australia, Alan Finkel, admitted that Austra reducing Australia's emissions to zero, <clears throat> pardon me, would have, quote, virtually no impact on climate change. So are we meant to follow the science? That's the chief scientist. No impact on climate change. Well, that is the science. Of course, Australia, with 1.3% of global emissions, getting rid of them, as Finkel has said, has virtually no impact on, uh, on, the, on the global surface temperatures. I asked Matt Keane several times now in the New South Wales Parliament, look, Keane, you're, you're turning the electricity grid upside down. You're spending $10 billion a year on so-called green energy programs. What's the outcome here? What's the outcome you're expecting, New South Wales, the provincial government doing this? What's the outcome in terms of lowering global surface temperatures because you're, you're concerned about global warming? Yeah. And, and he's got no answer. No. The answer that's been provided in data from our parliamentary library, yep. Alan, the result is a decrease in, in temperatures of 0.00055 degrees Celsius over a century, over a century. So basically nothing. Basically nothing. This is one of the greatest acts of self-harm in Australian history, an act of folly, all for no real purpose. Absolutely. So we'll export, Mark, our coal and gas and uranium to Asian nations so they'll have cheap energy and we are left behind. My friend, good to talk to you. Well, Alan, you know, you know the next thing, you know the ex next export is jobs. Yes, that's right. We send the coal, yeah, that's the, 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 the gas, the uranium, yep. and there's a fourth export. Yep that results here, that's jobs, yeah, particularly have, manufacturing jobs. I'll have a bit more to say about that tomorrow, Mark. Good to talk to you. We'll talk to you next week. There is always yes. talking common sense, Mark Latham. Well, before we go, the Northern Territory Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, resigned today. He did so while delivering the Northern Territory budget. That would have woken a few people up in the chamber. Mr Gunner said handing down the budget would be his final act as Chief Minister and Treasurer. His reasoning was that his head and heart were no longer in the job. He said instead they are at home. Gunner's 46. He'll continue as the member for Fanny Bay and move to the back bench. Who can argue with the reasoning? In fact, if only more politicians pulled up stumps sooner instead of performing half-heartedly and interfering with people's lives. But Gunner's resignation allows me to bring up a few things. Firstly, that this bloke was on $272,000 a year. He's been chief minister since 2016 first elected to the 25-seat legislature in 2008, can you believe? The Northern Territory has a population of 246,000 people, 246,000. Out of that, on last count, over 21,000 are public servants. Some commentators have raised alarm bells that this public service cohort is now such a huge voting block in the Northern Territory that there's no hope of reining in spending. Now, this is the time to sit down or you'll fall over. The 2022-23 budget released today, Tuesday, revealed a $1.1 billion deficit and net debt, net debt of $8.7 billion. Again, this is for a population of 246,000 people. That's almost $36,000 per territorian, including children. Now, I know we say someone's got to be joking, but this is no joke. This Northern Territory Parliament are spending like drunken sailors. But the thing with drunken sailors is they at least spend their own money. These people are spending your money. 
When it comes to GST carb-up, the Northern Territory contributes only $203 million, but receives in return $3 billion, $3,000 million. The most ignorant episode from this bloke gunner came last year when he tore up the $1.5 million quarantine bill issued by the New South Wales government. Gladys Berejiklian rightly requested the Northern Territory to pay the cost of 363 Territorians who returned to Australia via Sydney. Quarantine costs. New South Wales footed the bill for the quarantine. Gunner tore the bill up and called Berejiklian a gammon, which is a euphemism for something disappointing or that one doesn't agree with. The term is frequently used in the Northern Territory. And this is called government of the top end of Australia. Funnily enough, today, when he handed down the budget, he said, the budget is on the right track. Our budget discipline will continue. It's enough to leave you in stitches. Anyway, that's the Northern Territory. Thanks for watching tonight on ADH.TV. And remember, you can watch any episode you missed. Just go to the website, ADH.TV, and it's all there. We've had a stellar lineup so far, and that'll continue tomorrow night and the next, where we try to tackle all the issues that are affecting you. That's it from me. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.